Well, we're thinking about the Trinity. Um, yeah, the biblical idea that God exists as one God, but three persons. Uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each person has different characteristics, uh, but they all share equally the, the essence or the nature of the one God. It's a very simple sort of explanation. Um, it's a difficult doctrine. Uh, it's hard to understand and explain. It can be slightly awkward and uh, maybe a, a little embarrassing. Mostly we don't talk about it. We just sort of assume it. You won't hear many sermons on it. Uh, and, and we sort of hope it won't come up in our conversations with non-Christians because we don't want to appear stumped or we don't want to uh, feel like we don't know what we're talking about. But instead of ignoring it, today I, I want to highlight it and celebrate it. Uh, in particular, in how the doctrine of the Trinity gives us confidence before God. Uh, confidence. It's something that many people lack. Now, other religions lack confidence before God. Uh, because it's often about uh, how well they can keep the rules. And so there's uncertainty uh, and any confidence that you might have, well, that's just seen as pride or presumption. But it's not just other religions. Many Christians lack confidence before God. Maybe it's a fear, a fear of judgment, or maybe of death. Or maybe there's a guilty conscience that makes them doubt that they're forgiven. Or maybe they look at other people and they assume other people are doing better than they are and, and they feel like they don't measure up. Or maybe it's just a struggle to pray and, and you just doubt that God's actually hearing you. Many Christians lack confidence. Well, if that's you, uh, can I suggest you listen up? Because I want to give you five reasons why the doctrine of the Trinity gives you confidence. Uh, and the first one is, uh, the Trinity means you can be confident that Jesus has brought you to the Father. As Christians, we talk a lot and I think take for granted the fact that we can know and love God. We call him our Father. We, we talk to him. We have a relationship with God. We take it for granted, but it's actually a foreign concept for most religious people. They don't talk about the idea of having a relationship with God, of knowing him. So Muslims, for example, for them, Allah is basically unknowable. He's a mystery. He's completely separate and other from them. They hope he'll show them mercy. Uh, their experience is about serving rather than loving. There's little sense of having a relationship. For many secular Australians, uh, even if they do have some idea about God, it's a God who's distant, uh, at best uninterested in them, uh, at worst uh, something more of an impersonal force or an influence rather than actually a person. Uh, it's no wonder that Australians don't want anything to do with a God like that. But that's not the God we know. It's not the God of the Bible. The God who wants to know us. Uh, John's Gospel, flip back to chapter 1. John's Gospel begins by describing the eternal God. And it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The, the Word, that's the Son, and God, that's the Father. In some senses they're different, but in, a, in another sense they're the same. But God isn't just God within himself. He's actually God for us. God who moves outside himself. 
John chapter 1 continues down in verse 4 and it describes Jesus. In him was life and that life was the light of men, the light that influences men. And a bit further down in verse 9, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And again in verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Jesus the Son comes to us, becomes one of us, and then gives us the right to become like him, to become children of God as well, sons born of God. Only God himself... God the Son can bridge that gap. We certainly can't bridge the gap between us and God. It's like trying to jump to the moon. It's like a dead person trying to give themselves CPR. It's just impossible. Our problem is our sin. That's what separates us from God. We are dead and helpless. And so the loving plan of the Trinitarian God is to offer himself as a substitute. The Son, in obedience to the Father, dies in, our, dies in our place and satisfies the Father's wrath. An infinitely perfect life uh, wins, provides an infinite amount of mercy. And that's a transaction that happens within the Trinity. Uh, the Trinitarian God judges sin and is judged for sin. It's only the truth of the Trinity that can offer us a solid hope and a confidence that our sin has really been dealt with because God himself has dealt with it. And and so what that means is the Trinity means that God is the opposite of what many people think. He's not an impersonal force. He's not distant and unknowable. God is a relationship. God is love from all eternity within himself, rejoicing in the relationship of Father, Son and Spirit. But not only that, he bridges the gap by sending his Son and then sweeps us up into that relationship. Uh, We get swept up into the relationship of the Trinity, uh, into that family relationship. Uh, Tim Chester, in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, There's a lovely phrase. He says, the Trinity is a missionary community. God is inward looking, rejoicing in himself, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. But he's also outward looking, reaching out to make us children of God as well. The Trinitarian God is a missionary community. Well, that's the first reason the Trinity gives us confidence. We're confident Jesus has brought us to the Father. Uh, The second reason we can be confident uh, is that God is with us. Jesus has brought us. We can also be confident that God will stay now that we're with him. Uh, Flip over to John chapter uh, 14 that uh, Maddie read for us earlier. Uh, in, In that section of chapter 13 to chapter 17, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. He'll physically leave them, but he won't personally leave them or spiritually leave them. Uh, Chapter 14 begins with Jesus telling the disciples he's going away to prepare a place. But then verse 3, he says he'll come back 
and take his disciples to himself. He's describing the Holy Spirit coming and joining himself to his disciples. Philip asks him about the Father. Jesus says in verse 9, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And then in verse 10 he says, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now they're very simple words. You don't get any simpler um, simpler words than that, but they're describing an incredibly complex relationship, aren't they? I am in the Father. And then something different to that, the Father is in me. A bit further down from verse 15, uh, where Maddie started reading, Jesus then makes the extraordinary invitation to bring the disciples into that relationship of Father in Son in Father. Verse 15, If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. Notice the Trinity there, Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth. And Jesus promises that that Spirit of Truth will be with the disciples forever. He continues, The world cannot accept him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you, and will be in you. And what does that mean? Well, I think it probably means that in the present for the disciples, the Spirit is with them, next to them, physically, because Jesus is there with them. In the person of Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit is with the disciples. But in the future, it'll be something different. He will be in them, spiritually joined to them in the person of the Holy Spirit. All right, so we've, we've got the Spirit living in believers, but then Jesus stretches our minds a little further. In verse 18, he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. What's he mean there? Well, he could be talking about the resurrection, where he, he comes back from the dead. He could be talking about his second coming, when he goes back to heaven and then comes back at the end of time. But I think he's talking about coming in the person of the Holy Spirit. on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Listen listen to how he continues in verse 9. Before long the world will not see me anymore. I think I'm going back to heaven. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realise that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. So when was the day when the disciples realised that Jesus was in them? I think it's the day they received the Holy Spirit. The disciples will see Jesus, that they'll experience him, they'll understand him because he lives in them by his Spirit. Okay, blowing your minds up yet? Well, wait till we get to verse 23 because now Jesus includes the Father. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The Father and the Son, through the Holy Spirit, will make their home in the believer. We've got the whole Trinity living in every believer. Now you might think, whoa, that sounds a bit spooky, but 
it's, it's uh, notice that it's relational, it's personal. It's not like in the movies where you see someone possessed by an evil spirit. There's no sort of possession going on here. There's nothing subconscious or freaky. Uh, this is relational. When the three-person God lives in a Christian, it's about love. Jesus says, if anyone loves me, my Father will love him and make our home in him. To be filled with God, the Trinitarian God, is participating in the relationship that God enjoys within himself, the relationship of love. Notice how verse 21 puts it. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. That's relationship that goes round and round. Love expressed in obedience. God the Father loving God the Son, loving us, loving God. That, that's a description of what the life of the Christian is. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity describes that relationship, that experience, like a dance. The whole dance or drama or pattern of this three-person life, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, sort of relating to each other, is like a dance. That whole dance is to be played out in each one of us. Or put it the other way around, each one of us has got to get into that pattern to take his place in that dance. And listen to what he says then. There's no other way to the happiness for which you were made. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. Joy, power, peace, eternal life. God is the source of that. If you want those things, get into God being joined in a dance with the Trinitarian God. That's what your life is all about. But it's something that other religions know nothing about. It's the second reason why the Trinity gives us confidence. Third reason is we can be confident we're God's children. We can be confident we're God's children. Uh, flip, over, flip over to Romans 8, maybe another 20 pages or something. Romans chapter 8. Uh, it describes what life is like when God's spirit lives in you. There's all sorts of good things in that chapter and we're going to look at uh, Romans 8 in more detail in the last week of this series. But the blessing I want to focus on is uh, down in Romans 8 verse 14. It's actually up on the screen if you're having trouble finding it. Um, Those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave, again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him, by the spirit of sonship, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. If we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. God's spirit lives in us. That means we belong to him, we're part of his family, we're his sons and daughters. That's probably something that we've heard before. But have you connected it to the idea of the Trinity? Uh, that truth that we are sons and daughters flows from the idea that God is Trinity. We are sons and daughters because we're connected to 
God's son. And we're treated as God's son, as his sons and daughters. Let me show you. Verse 1 says that, uh, of chapter 8 says, Christians are those who are in Christ Jesus, who are united to Jesus. Uh, verse 9 flips it around and says that's the same thing as Christ being in us. Christ and us are one. One more relevant verse is there in verse 17, which is up on the screen, and it says if we're children, we're heirs and we're co-heirs with Christ. Christ is an heir, we're joined to him, that makes us heirs as well. The benefits that Christ has as a son come to us because we're joined to him. We've received his spirit of sonship. Uh, And so we can confidently call God Father. And that's the third reason the Trinity gives us confidence. Confidence that we're God's children. The fourth reason is we can be confident when we pray. I don't know how you would rate your prayer life out of ten. Think of a number. How content are you with your prayer life? Anyone score over five? Yeah. How many people I know are, are really thinking, yeah, my prayer life's great. We we nearly all struggle, don't we? But I reckon remembering that we are speaking to a Trinitarian God can give us confidence. Uh, Ephesians 5.20 says that we are to pray to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We approach God the Father confidently through the work of his Son. Hebrews 10 talks about the confidence that we can have because Jesus has prepared the way. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, he prepares the way for us. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. We pray confident that God will hear us because the Son prepares the way. But not only Father and Son... Romans 8, again, talks about God's Spirit, and you might have heard these verses before. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words can't express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. Uh, the Spirit guides and energises and goes before our prayers. Uh, we pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And when we remember that prayer is about being wrapped up in Father, Son and Holy Spirit, uh, then that should change the way we think about prayer. It's not us speaking to some distant, mildly angry Father in the sky and we're giving him our shopping list of what we want. Prayer's not that anymore. It it becomes an expression of a genuine relationship uh, where God himself is pushing our prayers upward. Another quote from C.S. Lewis uh, describes it really well. He says, an ordinary simple Christian is trying to get in touch with God. He knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge about God comes through Christ. 
God is the thing to which he's praying, the goal he's trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. The whole threefold life of the three-person being is going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. I reckon that transforms prayer. The privilege of prayer. It's the fifth reason we can, uh, the Trinity gives us confidence. Uh, well, last, sorry, that was the fourth reason. Fifthly, the last reason uh, is because we can be confident in Christian unity. Confident in Christian unity. Now, the previous four, they were all individual reasons and personal, but this last one is like a, a group task. Uh, John 17, uh, Jesus prays for the unity of his followers. But it's a unity that he actually ties to the doctrine of the Trinity. Our unity has a foundation of the Trinity. It's actually modelled on the Trinity. But it also illustrates the Trinity to the watching world. Have a look at verse 21. Jesus prays that all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Let's break it down. Notice that our unity, firstly, is modelled on the Trinity. May they be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. Our unity should be something like the unity of the Trinity. Well, what's that like? Well, John's Gospel describes... Uh, the full equality of Father and Son. All the way through, I am equal to the Father. The Father and I are one. They have different roles, but they have equal worth, equal dignity. Christian unity should be like that. There should be full equality. Uh, John's Gospel shows a glad submission of Father and Son. Uh, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. I'm only doing what the Father gives judgment to me and the Son judges. Uh, the Father uh, faithfully delegates to the Son, the Son joyfully obeys. Christian unity should be like that. It should be glad submission uh, within our diversities. Uh, thirdly, it shows, uh, John's Gospel shows us the joyful intimacy of Father and Son. Father and Son love and enjoy each other. And our Christian unity should be like that as well, joyful intimacy. But how can we do that? It sounds wonderful. It sounds perhaps too good to be true. Uh, we're all naturally selfish, self-centred and weary. And unity doesn't come easily. How can we do that? Well, Jesus says the secret of being joined to each other is to be joined to God. He says, may they be in us so that the world may see. Jesus' prayer is that we would experience and know and love God uh, through his powerful spirit living in us. And it's because of that spirit that we're able, that we have the power to show unity, to forgive and to repent and to love, generously love and to share. God in us is the foundation, the wellspring for our unity. We're not going to get unity by just agreeing on a theological statement or agreeing on 
a set of goals or common projects. It's not going to come from being committed to inclusion and love. It's got to begin with God living in us. True unity, uh, unity modelled on the tri-unity of God, only comes when each of us is in the triune God. Thirdly, when we do that, when God is in us, the world believes that the Father has sent the Son. Jesus says, may they be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The unity of the church is a living apologetic. It's an explanation for what God's character is like. It shows us something of the Trinitarian nature of God. Our diverse unity reflects and models and explains something of the diverse unity of God himself. May they be in us so the world might believe that you've sent me to Jesus. So let's not worry too much about whether we can explain or understand the Trinity. It's a pretty difficult thing to do. For us, the real challenge is to live the Trinity, to live in a way that we are confident of our standing before God, uh, where our prayer is genuine and rich. Uh, We live the Trinity in our unity with one another. Also, the world might know that the Father has sent the Son and loved him. Let's pray. Father, Son and Holy Spirit, uh, these, are, these are deep things that we're just scratching the surface of, but, but we want to know you more. We want to be in you. Uh, we want to love you and obey you and know more of your love for us. And we want to be united. Uh, please help us to do that so the world might see and recognise Jesus. Amen.